1 Kings chapter 12, if you'll join me there as we continue our study through 1 Kings together. At this point, as we come to our study in 1 Kings, we're now looking at the divided kingdom of Israel. Uh, We saw last time together the unfortunate events of Rehoboam, who was the son and successor of King Solomon, remember, who really became the pivotal instrument to bring about what we know as the divided kingdom of Israel, where uh, Rehoboam is the result of not listening to wise counsel and instead sort of uh, reverting uh, to his arrogancy, to his sort of self-seeking, kind of wanting to domineer and be controlling and stay in control of things, was rather stubborn and rebellious, didn't want to listen to the heart of the people, or really, I think, for that matter, uh, what really was the heart of God in the situation to be a servant leader. Instead, he was stubborn and forceful, and that led to really a, quite a, a cataclysmic uh, division among the people. Remember the ten tribes there in the northern part of Israel at that point broke away and decided to establish now their own separate kingdom, their own separate nation. Really what we kind of have is sort of the the division now of the land of Israel. Two kingdoms will be what is referred to as the southern kingdom of Judah, Judah and Benjamin. Uh, David will have a small remnant because of God's gracious covenant with him and not wanting to break that. Uh, But yet then in the north, which will be referred to as Israel, would be the ten northern tribes uh, that now come under the reign of their new king, who we saw they just appointed in chapter 12, a man named Jeroboam. When God tore the kingdom away from Rehoboam, God had sent a prophet Adonijah to this man Jeroboam and told him that when the kingdom was torn away from Rehoboam that ten tribes would be given to him and remember this glorious promise was given to Rehoboam this promise that if he were to honor God and to serve the Lord that God was willing to bless him to the same extent as even his servant David and all the covenant promises unfortunately we're going to see Jeroboam uh, starts out well but like unfortunately many at times he starts well but he finishes really bad Uh, and it's so important for us to always remember that it is not how we start the race it is how we finish the race Uh, you know it's very easy to start well it's much more difficult to run the race and to finish well by that same token you may start out really bad (laughs) we may have a really bad start to life or even a bad start to our christianity but the good news is you can still finish well Uh, You can get in the right lane and stay faithful and run your course and and finish well. And all that's going to matter at the end is that you finished well, not necessarily how you began. Well, at this point now, as we go through 1 Kings, we're going to kind of be jumping back and forth as we go forward in the chapters ahead and have to kind of pay attention when we're talking about the northern kingdom and when we're talking about the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom referred to as Israel. The southern kingdom will be referred to as Judah. At this point, Rehoboam is still reigning in the south. Jeroboam is now the king of the north and predominantly will focus on Jeroboam who's this newly appointed king. It tells us back in chapter 12 that Jeroboam uh, was called before the people and they made him king over all Israel. And so we pick up where we left off there in verse 25. He's now assumed the throne. Ten tribes have come under his power as God had prophesied would happen. Nothing about him, but this was just something sovereignly God allowed. It says, verse 25, Then Jeroboam built Shechem, 
in the mountains of Ephraim. So that's up in the northern area of the territory of the land of Israel. And he dwelt there. Now, uh, interesting that he would sort of establish, it almost seems sort of a capital there because that is actually where Rehoboam, the king of the south, Solomon's son, was actually coronated at. So maybe some of this was a little bit of a kind of a, a, a demonstration of his uh, assuming of the power of the land that he goes to the same area and kind of makes that his capital to kind of sort of, you know, show in the face of Rehoboam that he's now taking control of the predominant part of the people of Israel. It says, verse 25, he also went out from there and built Penuel and Jeroboam, verse 26, key term here, watch this, Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, remember that was the prescribed place God gave to the Israelites to set up the temple and to worship God properly there at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. He says, if the people go and offer their sacrifices at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord Rehoboam, the king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam king of judah so notice as soon as jeroboam uh, assumes the throne very shortly afterward he begins to make a very very fatal mistake and that is rather than seeking the heart of god rather than seeking to hear from the lord he starts listening to the little voice in his own head and inside his own heart it says there in verse 26 that Jeroboam said in his heart. Uh, now, uh, the Bible tells us in Jeremiah 17 that the heart is what? Deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. You know, we make a, a horrible mistake by saying in our culture, and it's sort of just one of those catchphrases, oh, well, just follow your heart. Well, the, the Bible says that, that you don't follow your heart. The Bible says you guide your heart, Proverbs says that you guide your heart in the way. The heart is not meant to be followed. The heart is meant to be guided in the right way because Jeremiah tells us under the spirit of the Lord's direction that our heart, even before it is desperately wicked, is deceitful above all things, that it's even more deceitful and deceiving than it is desperately wicked. Now, that's a real problem because it's able then to misguide us. And so often our thoughts and our feelings and these things that go on inside of our complex bodies so often our feelings and moods and thoughts and emotions those things so often misguide us in wrong directions and they can cause us you know there's that song that we sing very fitting it says uh, my thoughts deceive me and my feelings lie they're always drifting like an ocean tide and here you find Jeroboam and his mistake here and his reasoning, verse 26, is he's communing with his own heart and he's listening to his own heart and what his own heart is telling him. And what he starts to struggle with really is feelings, notice, of fear and insecurity and uh, worry about, notice, what may happen. He says there in verse 26, here's what he's struggling with, the fears and insecurities. Uh-oh, he says, the kingdom may return back to the house of David from which it was just torn away and given to him. And he says, if, notice, this may happen, and if, that's another possibility, these people go 
to offer sacrifices there at the Lord's house in Jerusalem, then what may happen is the heart of the people may say, hey, you know what? We actually like it here in Jerusalem. And what were we thinking anyway? Why did we turn away and rebel against the house of David and from our loyalty to Rehoboam, one of his descendants? Uh, forget King Jeroboam. We don't want him as our king. Let's, let's go back and give our allegiance to Rehoboam and just you know reconsolidate the nation and unify once again. And, and he starts to have these feelings of insecurity and these feelings of fear and worry about what may happen and if this should happen. And he uses that as his basis for his reasoning. And let me just say, it is never a good basis to make decisions and to take steps of action based upon feelings of fear and insecurity and worry and what if and this may happen and uh, look I understand those things are real they're real feelings they're real thoughts they're real things that go on in our emotions but that's not a good basis to make decisions from making decisions based in fear and worry and insecurity in our humanity typically is not good instead what Ray or Jeroboam should have been doing was trusting the promise of God remember he had a promise we saw in back in chapter 11 that God gave him a promise and God said to him Jeroboam if you do what I'm asking you to do he said Jeroboam he says if you heed all that I command you and walk he says in my sight and in my ways then I will be with you I'll build you an enduring house as I built for David and will give all Israel to you. In other words, God gave him a promise. If you just obey me, if you just obey my voice and follow and live according to my word, I'll establish you. You'll be secure. Anything I want for you will come to pass. You can be secure and comfortable and confident. And he says, I'll take care of you. And so God had given to him a promise and he should have just trusted the promise of God rather than listening to the thoughts and feelings and everything going on inside of his own heart. And sometimes we can be our worst enemy because we do like Jeroboam. We begin to listen to our own heart and what our own heart's telling us. And our heart deceives us and misguides us. And then we start making reactionary uh, kind of decisions and doing things that get us way off track because we should just be trusting God and his sovereignty and his promises and what he's told us and keeping our faith in him rather than letting fear and insecurity stir us up and then drive us in a direction that really leads us off of God's will for our life. So this is the mistake he makes here. He starts to get hesitant now. He's more concerned about his own personal desires and retaining his position as the new king. He wants to keep things under his control. He's got a control issue in a sense rather than wanting God's will is. So look what he does. Verse 28. Therefore, the king asked advice and then he made two calves of gold. And that should sound familiar. Remember Exodus 32? That's exactly what Aaron did. Aaron made two calves of gold when he was freaking out because Moses was taking too long to come back from his prayer meeting with God and, and Aaron just couldn't take the pressure and the people were saying, well, what's God doing and when are we going to get a decision? And, and, and Aaron couldn't take it and he caved under the pressure as a leader and he did the exact same thing now. Here he's repeating this grievous sin of Aaron that the people knew in their history. He makes two calves of gold and says to the people exactly what Aaron did. It's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. That's almost verbatim of what Aaron said back in the days of Moses. And it says, verse 29, he set up one calf in Bethel. That is sort of the, the border between the southern 
and the northern kingdoms divide there, kind of the central part of Israel. And then he set up another one very conveniently in Dan, which would be the far north. So he comes up with this idea, oh, I, I need to get things under control and I, I don't know if God's going to be able to keep it under control, so I better start taking matters into my own hands. And I need to protect my desires and I need to keep things under my control and make sure what I want happens, happens. So he now makes two golden calves as idols for the people to have places of worship. We'll see, he creates a whole separate worship system. And he basically says to the people, look, it's too much for you to go all the way. Now he says up to Jerusalem, it's technically down south, but you always go up to Jerusalem because it's a high point and it's also a place of elevation. But what he in essence is saying is, I mean, that would be very inconvenient for you to have to go all the way to Jerusalem to worship for the annual feast and to go to the house of the Lord. So listen, I'm about convenient worship. I'm about what's comfortable. You shouldn't have to sacrifice for God. You shouldn't have to bear any cost. I mean, God wants everything to be convenient for you. I mean, we're going to create for you drive-through worship. If you're down south, you can slip through Bethel. If you're up north, you can just go through the area there and Dan. And he basically creates an opportunity for the people to not have to be inconvenienced in any way to have this comfortable, convenient system of worship for themselves. And he's appealing to the flesh of humanity. Because look, our flesh, our sinful nature, right? What, what is it by nature? It's lazy and selfish and doesn't want to make sacrifices and wants to be self-serving. What's easiest for me? What's best for me? What's most convenient for me? And he understands human nature. You know, if people have the option of, of cost and sacrifice or something that's very easy, people are always in their flesh, in their carnality, going to divert towards what's convenient. That's why to this day still, you know, that, that this is what appeals even to worshipers in the modern generation. Hey, we're going to make it as easy as possible for you, as comfortable as possible for you, no cost, no sacrifice, nothing that would require you to sort of have to make a commitment on any level. People love that. Yes, no cost, no sacrifice, convenient worship. It requires nothing of me. Sign me up. I'm there because <laughs> that's what human nature desires. So he plays off of that and is seeking to use it to manipulate their carnality saying, look, it'd be too far for you. Don't go all the way to Jerusalem. I'm setting up some calves for you. You can use these. Let these be the reminder of the gods that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, introducing idolatry to the people, which uh, again, shows how unfortunate this happens and digresses downward very quickly. Verse 30 says, now this thing became a sin. That's a, certainly a big understatement in the Bible. For the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan, all the way to the north. Verse 31, look what else he did, the king. He made shrines on the high places and he made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. So notice, just anybody who wanted to be a priest, hey, you, want to be, you don't have to be of the, uh, called of God as the tribe of Levi was. Hey, it didn't matter if you were called, if, if you felt like you wanted to, to do that, he just was appointing anybody as a priest. Verse 32, and Jeroboam also ordained a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month. Notice, like the feast, it says that was in Judah 
and offered sacrifices on the altar. So take notice, he not only establishes his own priesthood, disregards those who are called by God, not caring whether somebody's genuinely called of God or not, just taking any person to just handle what would be spiritual matters, whether they're carnal or evil or whatever their you know, kind of pedigree is spiritually. And then he also establishes now, he says, his own feast on the 15th day of the eighth month. Now, notice, he says it was just like the feast that was in Judah. What that's referring to is, remember, the Feast of Tabernacles was scheduled to happen always on the 15th day of the seventh month. So, remember, God required all Jewish males, particularly the males, at least three times a year, they were required to be in attendance at Jerusalem for the three major feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Even if the families could not know, could not all go to the pilgrimage to go up there to worship, the males were required to be there in observance. Again, God was indicating, look, it's essential that the men of the home, that the males be in a place of close communion with God. So three times a year, they had to stop their work. They had to trust the Lord. They had to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, observe the feast there and appear before the Lord in worship because God saw that as more valuable than anything else they could be doing, that they would be strong and in close communion with the Lord. So he knows that this is one of the things that people would be tending to approach and to go towards in the seventh month. So again, what does he do? He says, hey, we're going to have our own feast up here. I don't want you to have... To, uh, so look, just don't go the seventh month. The next month, we're going to have our own feast right here. Again, for your convenience, we're catering to you. Want to keep you happy. Make sure that everything is kind of kosher and comfortable for you. And he establishes his own feast. It says he sacrifices on an altar. So now he's built his own altar there. So he did at Bethel, it says, verse 32, sacrificing to the calves that which he had made. And at Bethel, he installed the priests on the high places which he had made. And so he made offerings on the altar which he had made at Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month, the month which he had, notice the language, devised in his own heart. And he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and he offered sacrifices on the altar and burned incense. So, I mean, what a tragedy. King Jeroboam very quickly here just completely ignores everything God intended for him. Such opportunity, the calling of God upon his life. God, I mean, God gives this man such incredible grace. He's just another representation in the Bible of someone who just completely forfeits such great opportunity, such great potential, great opportunity. God was so gracious to him, gave him this opportunity, and just in a short matter of time, he allows his own human fears and selfishness and insecurity and desire to hold on to his position to just lead him not only completely off, off track personally, but he introduces and establishes really a completely separate religion and his own system of worship up in the north as a way to try and keep the people under his power because he was afraid they might revert back to serving Rehoboam. And, and he basically disregards God's prescribed way of worship properly, creates his own religion, teaching the people basically, look, you can approach God however you want. You don't have to go to the house of the Lord. It doesn't matter that you have proper priesthood that God prescribed. It doesn't matter that you offer sacrifices properly or observe the Lord's feast. I know yeah, I know that's what... But listen, we're, we're creating our own altered deviation of, of the way that we want to worship God here. 
and he introduces idolatry into the northern part of Israel, which leads ultimately to its downfall, this action right here. But he's teaching the people, unfortunately, as I said, that you can approach God on your terms. You don't have to approach God on his terms. You can decide for yourself how you want to approach God. Now, can I just say, is that not a very fitting illustration of really what a lot of people do in the world? They don't want to approach God God's way, God's prescribed way, through a personal relationship with his son, Jesus Christ, believing that his shed blood on the cross for our sin and his resurrection from the dead is the only way and only reason we can have a relationship with God because Jesus said, I am the way exclusively to the Father. And, and yet, sadly, so many... Well, I mean, yeah, I, I have faith. And, and I, I, I have a relationship with God and you begin to dialogue with them and you realize what they've done is they've created their own idea of God, their own, it's, I call it salad bar theology. You know, they basically just go up to the salad bar and they pick and choose what they like and what they don't like and, and they create their own little religious platter. And I like this, but I don't like that. And so they take a little mix of this and a little bit of that and they kind of create their own idea of God, their own concept of God, their own religious system, if you would. It's basically the worship of self. It's just a, uh, the grossest form of idolatry, really. And he introduces this now to the people, tragically, as he devises this in his own heart. Again, it, it's, the, it's the worship of self and idolatry is now introduced into the northern kingdom which will drastically cause them to spiral downward very quickly morally. Well, chapter 13 says, and behold, notice God's not going to let this go undealt with. He's going to address it. God wants repentance. God's going to reach out to Jeroboam and try and get his attention, though he won't respond, unfortunately. It says, chapter 13, verse 1, behold, a man of God went from Judah, that's down in the south, to Bethel, by the word of the Lord. So he's clearly being directed by the word of the Lord. He has a prophecy now. And it says that he goes to Jeroboam who stood by the altar to burn incense. So envision the scene here. This is going to be a public conversation, a public confrontation, you could even say. Here's King Jeroboam. Again, so picture in your mind here. Again, he's the king over a people nationally. This would be like you know, going somewhere where the president of the United States is and he's there having his worship gathering. He says he's standing there by the altar where one of these, uh, you know, golden casts has been built and there's sacrifices going on. No doubt there's a public gathering around and this man of God now receives a word from the Lord and is directed, I want you to go and speak my word to the national leader of the people. I want you to go and rebuke him. What he has done is wrong. He's misled the people. He's guiding them into idolatry and, and sin and rebellion against their God. And so he has this word from the Lord. Envision this. He now goes, and this happens in front of a group of people collectively. And it says, verse 2, as he shows up there at the altar where they're burning incense, that he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a child, Josiah by name, now he'll be one of the godly kings a few, uh, actually centuries from now, we're talking a few hundred years later, a child by the name of Josiah shall be born to the house of David, that is in the southern kingdom, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests 
of the high places who burn incense on you and men's bones shall be burned on you. That is burned on the altar. So he speaks this prophetic word and says there's coming a time where God is going to judge the sin and rebellion of what you have just introduced through this idolatry and these false altars of worship to other gods than Yahweh God. And he says there's coming a time when a child will be born. Notice God already knows his name. God knows the sex of the child. God knows the name of the child. And can I say this to you? What is being prophesied here comes to pass, if you want to write in your notes there, Second Kings chapter 23 you can see the fulfillment of this. But listen, here's the key. This prophet is predicting an event that will happen when someone is born, Josiah. He ascends to the throne of the southern kingdom of Judah. He will then go up and he will directly confront the sin and the idolatrous worship that was you know, transgression against God there in the northern kingdom. And he will do exactly what's described here sacrifice and burn the bones of the priests who were engaged in these things on that altar as it's destroyed by him and it won't happen for 325 years from the day that this is being spoken so here is god speaking of an event that's going to happen 325 years before it ever does god already knew that a male child who had a name and a plan and a purpose some of which many were God's purposes, divine purposes, was going to be born 300 years later and God knew the life of that child. Don't tell me that children's lives don't have value. God knew the life of that child, the plan and the purpose and everything about that child. And, and Josiah will actually carry this out. Now, I, I look at this prophecy made and again, it is just a reminder, what a very important reminder, how God knows everything. God knows, and so here God, because he dwells outside the time realm continuum, God in the present could speak about something specifically that was going to happen 300 years plus later on because God spans all of eternity. There's no such thing to God as past, present, and future. God says, I am that I am. In other words, to God, everything technically is hard for our little mind to grasp it. It's all in the present. Because God doesn't just know the beginning and the end. The Bible says God is the beginning and the end. So for us, it's hard to, to fathom and grasp that. But look, this should be why we should understand and more easily accept. For God to speak prophetically and predict things is no thing at all to God. Because to God, what's going to happen 700 years from now or 300 years from now, he's already confident. That's why the Bible as well is unlike any other book because the Bible, one third of it, is filled with prophecy where God would speak of things in the future that were going to happen and hundreds of years later, then they finally come to pass because the one true and living God dwells outside of the time realm and he knows everything. Now that is all the more reason why, listen, we should not listen to our own hearts and our own minds or the ideas and input of others. We need to learn to listen to God. Because if God knows what's going to happen 300 years from now, he also knows what's going to happen in your life, like Josiah, 300 days from now. So what's going to happen in your life 300 days from now, a year from now, God says, I already know. I already know what's going to happen a year from now. Now, if he already knows what's going to happen a year from now, or 30 days from now, or three days from now, why in the world 
would we not be very serious about saying, God, lead me. God, you choose for me. I don't... Please, Lord, help me not to listen to myself and my own ideas. Lord, you lead me because you know what next week holds, next month holds, next year holds. God's got the whole book of your entire life and all we can do is kind of live a page at a time, but that's why it's so vital to stay in fellowship with God and learn to listen to God. Learn how to hear from God. If there's any lesson you get out of chapter 13, let it be this. It is absolutely crucial that we learn to hear from the Lord for ourselves. This is going to be the mistake we'll see happens, not listening to the Lord, but listening to other voices, and that always causes trouble. So he, he predicts this judgment upon the altar, verse 3, and then to confirm that, he also gave a sign that same day, saying, this is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart, and the ashes on it shall be poured out. So look, God speaks his word, and then often as God does, he gives a word, he speaks something, and then he validates it with the present act of his power. Many times this would happen in Jesus' life and ministry in the book of Acts. The word of God would be spoken and there would be a corresponding miracle to validate the word of the Lord. So they could very easily just dismiss this. I mean, again, this wasn't going to happen for 300 years. Oh, sure, someday some guy named Josiah is going to be born and he's going to judge our altar here in this worship system of what we're doing. God wants to put his stamp on that to make people believe that he means what he says and says what he means. So... The sign which will accompany this prophecy is something would happen immediately in that very present hour which would cause the people to go, whoa, that's really from God. So a sign was going to happen. The altar was going to split apart. Well, verse 4, it came to pass when King Jeroboam, you can imagine a king getting rebuked publicly like this, heard the saying of the man of God who cried out against his altar there in Bethel, that he stretched out his hand from the altar saying, arrest him, silence this guy. I don't like what he's saying. You know, if you don't like, if you don't like what God's saying, what do you typically want to do? You want to, as quickly as you can, silence the messenger. You, if somebody's speaking the truth, you, whatever you can do to get rid of him or get away from him, that's typically human nature. So he says, arrest this guy, get him out of here. And he's resisting what God is trying to speak to him about, which was really to rebuke him for the wrong direction he was going and the wrong things that he had done. God wanted his repentance. So he doesn't want to repent. So he says, arrest him, get rid of him. But notice verse four, then his hand, which he stretched out toward him instantly, a miracle, withered so that he could not pull it back to himself. And then verse five, the altar, as God said, split apart right in that moment. The ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. So God intervenes and shows his power very clearly, very unmistakably. The altar splits apart just like it had been spoken a few minutes earlier. And the hand that came forth there of uh, King Jeroboam to try and resist what God was doing and resist the power of God, his hand instantly, it says, withered and shriveled up and, and, and something very powerful happened in his life. Now, certainly in this, God was just seeking to just show his power, as I said, to validate his word and really to get Jeroboam to realize, look, you're playing with fire here. No pun intended. I mean, this is, this is dangerous. 
what, what, this is really dangerous what you're doing and incredibly destructive not only for you but for all the people who you're having influence over and that are connected to you. So this miracle happens. His hand withers up and no doubt he's greatly humbled. That's why verse 6, the king answered and said to the man of God who spoke these things, please entreat the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me now could you take notice if you would entreat the favor he doesn't say of the lord god he doesn't say entreat the favor of the lord my god he says entreat the favor of the lord your god which shows me there's not repentance going on here and the rest of the chapter reveals that what this is is now the consequence of his rebellious wrongdoing has come to pass something's happened to his hand that's pretty important and now because he's suffering personal loss and pain and consequence, all he wants is the pain and consequence to go away. Hey, do me a favor. Would you say one of those prayers for me? This, I don't like the problem that just came that I made for myself. Get me out of my problem. Take away the pain. Take away the consequence. There's no real genuine interest to change or to repent. He just wants relief from the problem. And unfortunately, when people don't genuinely want to repent, that's all they really do want. They, they, they just want God like a genie to just take away their problem. Take away the problem I made for myself. Take away the pain that I've just caused for myself in my own life. But look how gracious God is. Again, God knows every human heart, but look what verse six says. So the man of God entreated the Lord, he prayed, and the king's hand was restored to him and became as it was before. God graciously restored back what had been lost in his life. I have right there in the margin of my Bible written the word grace, exclamation point. <laughs> Did he re deserve to have his hand restored? He withered and messed up, but, but God's gracious. And even in the condition his heart was in, God said, you know what? I'm just going to show the marvel of my grace again. I'm going to be kind to him again. And God was just gracious to him in his most undeserving condition. Why? Because God's trying to win his heart over. And God's trying to motivate him with his grace and kindness. So now his hand is restored well, verse 7, no doubt the king realizes this guy, this man of God, he's handy to have around. I ought to make friends with him. So he says to him, verse 7, to the man of God, come home with me and refresh yourself. Relax, he says, and, and, and I'll give you a reward. Let me reward you for, for whatever you can do and for what you've done for me to pray in that way and get my hand restored. But the man of God, verse 8, said to the king, if you were to give me half of your house, which isn't probably worth very much, but... Anyway, give me half of your house as I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread, nor drink water in this place. This is key. Look at verse 9. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, God had said to him, you shall not eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the same way you've came. Now, that's very important because what that's telling us is that when this man was sent from Judah up to Bethel with the word of the Lord. Not only did he have the prophecy that he was supposed to speak directly to the king to rebuke him, but God also gave him clear direction that he was to go up, he was to speak the word of God, he was not to seek any reward or compensation or remuneration. He was just to obey the Lord. It wasn't about personal pats on the back or get some reward for yourself. It was just do it because it's right. Just obey me, go speak to him. And as soon as you speak to him, God said, I don't want you to get caught up in what they're doing there. I don't want you to even have, he says, I don't even want to have a glass of water or even a piece of bread with anybody. Just come right back to where 
I've originally sent you from. And he says, don't even return the same way. Again, this was for God's purposes, God's divine reason. He had received clear direction from the Lord. He knew what God had told him to do. It wasn't as if it was a questionable thing. The Bible wants us to understand, verse 9, that he knew he was not to do this. He says, it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, you shall not eat bread or drink water or return by the same way. So he went, verse 10, another way and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. Now, take notice, the chapter gets a little bit odd here, but there's a main point, as I said earlier, really in it. But an unusual thing happens. Verse 11, now an old prophet dwelt in Bethel and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told their father the words which he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, which way did he go? For his sons had seen which way the man of God went who came from Judah. So uh, this old prophet gets word of what had happened that day, this marvelous experience, the rebuke, this bold rebuke from this zealous young prophet, this man of God. And take notice, the Bible just keeps calling him a man of God. His name's never mentioned. God uses someone, he, he has no name, no recognition. All, you know, all, all he was was just a man of God. There, he wasn't anybody famous, wasn't anybody influential. He just was a man of God. Just someone who listened to God and God used him. And word comes back, you should have seen it, Dad. I mean, he went right to, and he rebuked King Jeroboam right to his face. And then the king was like, who are you? Get out of here. And he stuck out his hand. And his hand just withered right on the spot and the altar bust open and then he said oh please pray for me pray for me and he says and then he prayed for him and wow his hand grew right back and and, and so the story's being told and this old prophet is probably being stirred you know it seems in some ways perhaps he had kind of been maybe uh, you know shrinking back in some of his calling and commitment to the lord because you see he doesn't have a real good antenna from hearing from god as we'll see in the verses of head. So verse 13, as he hears the story, the old prophet said to his sons, verse 13, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him and he rode on it and went after the man of God. And he found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. And he said to him, look, come home with me and eat bread. Now, verse 16, he said to him, just as he did to King Jeroboam, I cannot return with you nor go with you neither can i eat bread or drink water with you in this place for i have been told by the word of the lord you shall not eat bread nor drink water there nor return by going the way that you came now good spot on there he still stays steadfast he's obeying the word of god he's obeying the voice of the lord and what he clearly knows god has told him to do again it wasn't a questionable thing he had clear direction on this particular matter from the Lord. But, but again, he, he declines this next invitation, which would have been even a little bit more difficult. He's thinking, oh, well, this is a, supposedly a, an older prophet, a godly man, you, you know, some fellowship. But verse 18, the older prophet, here's where the problem arises, said to him, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me. Ha ha, how about that? You ever had that happen, he says? An angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, bring him back with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. And then the Holy Spirit informs us, but he was lying to him. 
Now, you could sit here all day long, as some do, and speculate, try and contemplate and think through, okay, well, what was the purpose of that? Why would he go and lie to him? And if he's supposed to be a prophet of God, and you know, why is he doing that? And is he intentionally trying to you know, sabotage a fellow prophet? Is he jealous because you know, he got to be used by God and the old prophet didn't? Let me share with you my personal conviction, and you're free to do with it what you want. One of two things happened. Either he was genuinely lying to him for some reason to test him, and he used the statement, an angel of the Lord appeared to me, to kind of try and hyper-spiritualize making up this story of, well, an angel communicate. I, didn't, I actually had this spiritual experience, so that trumps whatever happened to you because I had an angelic encounter with a message from God. And so listen, God changed his mind. God said, you, you can now change things and, and you can come and eat bread at my house and then go back on your way. So either he is lying in that way or, and this tends to be my conviction, keep in mind, this is a possibility. What could be happening is maybe the older prophet genuinely did have an encounter with an angelic being. And maybe the problem is the reason why he then came forth with a lie is because that angelic being was not a holy angel it was an unclean, demonic angel, an unclean spirit. Remember, Paul said when he wrote in the New Testament that even the devil himself masquerades as an angel of light. So perhaps he did have an encounter with an unclean, demonic spirit who wanted to sabotage God's plan and God's will and ruin a man of God's life who was being used well by the Lord so he reveals himself, this demonic, unclean angel, and says, this saith the word of the Lord. Tell him to come home. And so perhaps maybe he did have an encounter, and he's thinking the encounter was a word from God, and it actually was a deceptive message from the devil himself, and he did not use discernment. And so he runs off, and he says, the word of the Lord from the angel says it's okay for you to come. But... It says, verse 19, so he went back with him, he, he followed the lie, unfortunately, and ate bread in his house and drank water. In other words, he did not use discernment. He did not use, look, just because somebody says, thus saith the Lord, just because somebody says, God told me to tell you. Look, the Bible says, we're not to despise prophecies. God does speak prophetically and he does speak through other people. But the Bible says we're to test all things and hold fast to what's good. Remember, God, God's not double-minded. God doesn't contradict himself. God's never going to say something to you that contradicts the written word of God. And God's never going to say something to you that's going to contradict something perhaps that he's already clearly told you to do in your life. If he's clearly told you something, he's not going to send a contradictory message. And listen, if for some reason God decides to call an audible in your life and change directions, he knows your phone number. He doesn't have to send somebody else who comes to you and says, God told me to tell you. Whenever somebody says, well, that's nice. Last I checked, when God wanted to tell me something, he just told me. Typically, when somebody is saying something to you that is a word from the Lord, this is what I found and what I see is scriptural, usually it is confirming what God has already told you. 
And God's already communicated and communed with your heart and spoken to you through his word. And then God will send someone into your life, a godly vessel who will speak into your life, sort of a reaffirming, confirming word where you say, wow, now I know that's the Lord. Because I've been sensing God was saying that to me. And now God just used this brother or sister or somebody to come and speak that same word into my life. So he doesn't use discernment here. He just buys the whole angel, brought a, a message from God. And he goes with him, and as a result, verse 20, it happened as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. So now the prophet gets a real word from the Lord, and the real word from the Lord is not very good. It says, he, offered, he cried out to the man of God and said to him, Thus says the Lord, this genuinely was God now, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you but came back and ate bread and drank water in the place which the Lord said to you, eat no bread and drink no water. Your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. In other words, you're not even going to make it home alive because you've disobeyed the voice of the Lord. There would be consequence. There would be loss. He was going to actually lose his life. Verse 23, so it was after he'd eaten bread and after he had drunk that he saddled his donkey for him and the prophet whom he had brought back in verse 24, here's God's word, comes to pass. Now you can tell it was God because it was validated. When he was gone, a lion met him on the road and killed the prophet, the young man of God. And his corpse was thrown on the road and a donkey stood by it and the lion also stood by the corpse. And there a man passed by and saw the corpse thrown on the road and the lion standing by the corpse. Now look, right away that's a clear indication that this is something that God's done because that's what's happening there is weird that's not natural okay take notice what, what the Holy Spirit is revealing a lion kills him on the road his corpse is laying there this young man of God who disobeyed the voice of the Lord and it says the lion kills him his corpse is there a donkey is standing by now that's dessert for a lion okay the lion doesn't eat the donkey and the lion kills the man and the lion's not eating his corpse. He just killed him and the lion is just sitting there by a corpse and a donkey's sitting there too and basically the lion, in a sense, he cooked dinner, doesn't eat dinner and gives up dessert with the donkey. That's not natural. <laughs> so it's, what's going on? God's trying to make it really clear this was a divine intervention of God. Something very unnatural was taking place. So when people walked up, they saw this scene. Whoa, this, this is God because this is unusual what's taking place here. But God wanted to see that it was genuinely from him. Then they went and told it in the city where the old prophet dwelt. Now, the, when the prophet who had brought him back from heard it, he said, it is the man of God who was, notice, disobedient. Notice the continual repetition, disobedient to the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has delivered him to the lion which has torn him and killed him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to him. Now, now, can I just say quickly before I move on, I want to wrap up the chapter as we finish, but notice the interesting illustration. How did he suffer consequence and die when he disobeyed the voice of the Lord? By a lion. What does Peter say in the New Testament, 1 Peter 5? He says, be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And listen, 
this is exactly what the devil is doing. The devil is looking for those who are men of God and women of God who make the grievous mistake of not listening to the voice of the Lord and not listening to the word of the Lord. And when a child of God, a man of God, a woman of God who may even be being mightily used of God starts not listening to the word of God in their life and not listening to the voice of the Lord in their life, they make themselves vulnerable prey for the roaring lion who comes in and wants to destroy our lives. Well, verse 27, it says, The prophet then, feeling sad, spoke to his son, saying, Saddle the donkey. So they saddled it, and he went and he found his corpse thrown on the road, and the donkey and the lion just standing there by the corpse. And the lion had not eaten the corpse, nor torn the donkey. Again, this was very unusual. And the prophet took up the corpse of the man of God, laid it on the donkey, brought it back, and the old prophet came to the city to mourn and bury him. This is why I genuinely think the old prophet was deceived by an unclean, demonic angel and didn't genuinely try and lie to him and, and cause problems. Because look, look how sad he feels now. What he realizes in some ways is, oh my goodness, I contributed to this guy's death. I didn't use discernment. I listened to an unclean angel, gave him a wrong message, stumbled him, and he didn't use discernment either, and now the poor guy's dead. And so that's why I genuinely believe that he wasn't trying to harm him. He, he made a mistake himself as well. So he laid the corpse out of respect in his own tomb, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. And so it was, after he had buried him, that he spoke to his son, saying, Look, when I am dead... Bury me in the tomb where this man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones for the saying which he cried out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines on the high places which are in the cities of Samaria will surely come to pass. In other words, this is a genuine man of God. Yes, he made a, a, a very tragic mistake, but he genuinely was a man of God and used of God. And unfortunately, he lost his life as the result of a consequence of some bad decisions, but the old prophet had respect for what this young man of God had done and knew his words and prophecy would come to pass. Verse 33, And after this event, Jeroboam, the king, notice, did not turn from his evil way. So after all these things unfolding, still no repentance from Jeroboam, but again made priests from every class of people of the high places, whoever wished he consecrated and became one of the priests of the high places. And this thing was the sin of the house of Jeroboam so as to exterminate and destroy it from the face of the earth. So this sin of Jeroboam, which he persisted in, he didn't repent, he didn't change his ways, he continued to lead the people in idolatry. This will be the thing historically that continues to be repeated throughout the northern kingdom of Israel and leads to their decline. Now, now let me leave you with this, this thought as we wrap up this evening. As I said earlier, let me restate again. It is very, very important that we learn to hear from the Lord for yourself. You must learn to hear from the Lord for yourself and then follow what the Lord is telling you to do. Jesus said to us, who have the blessed privilege of even having the Holy Spirit of God dwell in us, Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. Listen, God wants to speak to you. God wants to lead you. God knows your will and his will for your life 
way better than anybody does, better than a pastor does, better than a fellow Christian does. God can use other people in our lives to confirm things and give us counsel. There's value in that and helping discern the voice of the Lord. But at the end of the day, it is critical that you learn to hear from God yourself and that you follow what God is telling you to do and do what the Lord is telling you. It will keep you safe and it will keep you in line with what God's plans and purposes are for you. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God and Lord, above all else, how you speak to us so directly and clearly so often through just your written inspired word because it's alive and the breath of God and life of God contained within it. Lord, would you keep speaking to me, to my brothers and sisters? Lord, as we read your word daily, may we have manna from heaven. May we get that fresh word and season that we need for our lives to stay in step with what you want for us. Please continue to direct us, Lord, and speak to us by your spirit, we ask as well, that we would continue to just hear that which, Lord, you would want to say to us and that you would allow us to have the grace to respond and follow through with what you're telling us to do over any other voice in us or among us. And for we ask in Jesus' name, amen.